0: Welcome to Justice
1: Today, the official podcast of the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs, where we shine a light on cutting-edge research and practices and offer an in-depth look at what we're doing to meet the biggest public safety challenges of our time. Join us as we explore how funding, science, and technology help us achieve strong communities.
0: Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Tamara Harold. I'm a senior advisor to NIJ Director, Dr. Nancy Levine. In my current role, I'm working to promote NIJ's Evidence to Action Initiative. We're bringing scientific research directly to criminal justice professionals to help inform their decision-making and create more effective, efficient, ethical, and equitable justice outcomes. Today, we'll be discussing how three policing professionals have championed the use of science and evidence to reduce gun violence victimization. They are all members of NIJ's Law Enforcement Advancing Data and Science Program, also known as LEADS Program, designed to increase the research capabilities of law enforcement professionals and agencies. To give you more insight into the amazing work of LEADS scholars around the country, we are joined by Mr. Jason Shees, who has served as a policing professional for more than 29 years and was selected as a 2020 LEADS scholar. Mr. Shees currently commands the Analytical Services Division at the Durham, North Carolina Police Department. Lieutenant Matthew Barter is a 15-year policing veteran, selected as a 2018 LEAD Scholar, and currently serves as Chief of Staff for Chief Alan Aldenberg of the Manchester, New Hampshire Police Department. We are also joined by Chief Cecilia Ash, a 2019 LEAD Scholar with more than 27 years of policing experience, who was recently named Police Chief for the Milford, Delaware Police Department. To start us off, let's set the stage by acknowledging that gun violence skyrocketed across many jurisdictions in 2021. In Wilmington, Delaware, A record number of people were killed by gun violence, prompting local media to describe the killings as a wave of assassinations. While gun violence continued to rise in neighboring cities, Wilmington was engaged in an evidence-based strategy known as group violence intervention, sometimes called focused deterrence. This approach goes beyond enforcement and offers those who commit crimes alternatives, including job training, subsidized housing, food assistance, and other social services to help them change their life circumstances and escape violence. Chief Ash, first, congratulations on your recent appointment as chief.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it very much.
0: In 2021, you were serving as inspector of operations in the Wilmington Police Department and were instrumental in leading your city toward evidence-based solutions that would drive down gun violence. You knew what the research shows, that deterrence works well when it's directed toward people at high risk of offending in a meaningful and focused way. Tell us, when did Wilmington first adopt the group violence intervention strategy what happened to it over time, and what happened following the increase in killings in 2021?
1: Yeah, so I think um, what's most important to take from this is that in 2017, uh, we met with Dr. David Kennedy of the National Network for Safe Communities um, to go over uh, kind of this GVI approach. Um, because we knew even at that time, we were labeled as Murder Town USA. Um, We also had the highest propensity for juvenile violence um, as well. And in that, what we had to do is break things down, right? Look at the research, um, stop the guessing game, look at the research and say, where are we as an agency? Um, Looking at our intelligence-led policing, um, but then also looking at where do we take things next? We know that our traditional style of policing was not working. Um, we had uh, distrust within our, our communities. Um, and really that comes from kind of that zero tolerance approach, which a lot of our forefathers in, in law enforcement um, you know, inflicted upon a lot of these communities and disproportionately on communities of, of color. Um, So when we really looked at things and drilled down, we started to focus on the people. Everything is based off of human contact, right? Um, Whether it's intelligence-led policing with human contact, whether it's engaging in social services, it's human contact. And when we started to drill down on those things in 2018, we saw great reductions, but it's not about one strategy. It's about overlaying those strategies. Um, In 2021, we saw the increase in violence, I believe, um, because we lost that human contact um, because we stopped uh, because of COVID um, having our call-ins engaging with these people who had the highest propensity for violence. When we were doing enforcement efforts, we were also losing um, in the courts because the courts were so far behind. So, where I think we ended up making a lot of strides is holding the course. Um, our governor, Governor Carney, was very supportive of the program. Really allowed us the ability to create sustainability within the within the program, and held the course as a politician, right when the when the heat was hot. Um, and so we we were able um, in 2022 to drive that down um, by a. a probably a 58% reduction in homicides and a 30% reduction in overall shootings. So I think the takeaway from that is look at your policing strategies, base them in research and stay the course. Even when it gets hot, sometimes you got to stay the course in these things um to allow the research to play out.
0: Those are simply amazing results. A uh, more than 50, 50% reduction in homicide is just absolutely incredible and a testament to your commitment to evidence-based practices. Lieutenant Barter, your agency adopted a similar group violence intervention approach called Project Connect. And my understanding is that Manchester's project focused heavily on social network analysis to identify the individuals involved in gun violence. And in the project's second phase, leverage street outreach workers to interrupt cycles of violence. I know some police professionals are wary about working with external partners, including outreach workers. Tell us about the partnerships your agency formed and what happened to victimization among those that were identified as at risk for gun violence.
2: Yeah, we um, we recognized, obviously, there was an issue and a growing problem. And so when Chief Aldenberg uh, took the helm at the police department, we really wanted to be more strategic in our approach. And we partnered with the National Policing Institute um, to kind of develop uh, a concept and a really a, a strong problem solving approach. And we adopted the CompStat 360 model um, for our agency. And in doing so, it's really community centered. And what it says is, um, you know, gun violence, uh, gun crime and, and violence in general is not a police problem in and of itself. It is a community issue and everyone in the community needs to partner on that. And so that's where the partnership started, was really engaging with our community partners, with members of, with members of the community to, to look at understanding the problem, to look at the drivers of the problem, and then look at gaps. And we recognized through that process that a gap we had was we weren't connecting with with especially the youth population that we needed to and the youth that were most at risk for gun crime and, and gun being involved in gun violence. And so we um, we identified a really strong partner, a local nonprofit called My Turn, that's already working with many of these youth or many of their, their associates. Um, and we engaged with them and they had the capacity and I think the built-in relationships to connect with youth in a way that we just couldn't as a police department or as police officers. And, and through that partnership, because we engaged and because they engaged back with us, Um, We identified that we could really do some 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 great things. And so what we worked on with them is using the social network analysis to identify kind of those influencers, those key people involved in gun violence. Um, And we pretty simply just referred those names over to, to Project Connect and said, this is who we are seeing as most at risk and most influential within these groups. Um, and do you think you can connect with them and see, A, what services you can provide? And B, just be that, that form of communication that can maybe, um, if something's going on, uh, talk to them. And and that's what happened. They did a great job. Some of it was literally cold calls by outreach folks and just leveraging their own networks. It was really cool to see. And one by one, they gained credibility and trust in the group and got them in the door and started having connections with them. Um, you know, we're not there yet with having police officers have connections with these youth in the same manner. Um, but having that in between has been really, really helpful. And so if things are flaring up. If there's a rap video that drops, if there's social media conflict going on, that I think we all have seen, um, we can voice those concerns to our partners at Project Connect and say, hey, we're seeing this. Most of the time they have also seen it and they have also recognized it usually before us um, and say, hey, well can, you know, do you think you make a call? And and they'll do that, they'll, they'll, they'll engage and talk and it's been great. And, and so what we, what we saw was pretty significant, uh, I think the biggest eye opener was reduction in victimization among the group. And so before we were seeing, um, uh, of the, the influencers that we sent over them being victims, uh, of, of violent crime, um, you know, five times a month, roughly within that group, which for us, you know, we're a smaller city, but that, that was pretty significant um, compared to everyone else. And we saw that drop to zero during this this kind of phase of street outreach, this this time period block that we uh, did our, our initial evaluation. And so that was significant for us to see that not only do we see reductions in just police involvement being needed suspects involved, but the biggest one was that they weren't victims of crime anymore. Um, and I think that goes to hopefully the, the violence interruption piece, that um, if something happened um, that either the person did or they, their group was involved in, they weren't then being retargeted uh, in a crime. So that, that was that was very significant for us to see.
0: And I don't think anybody can argue with results that lead to a complete absence of victimization. I mean, that's absolutely incredible. In my experience, when talking about evidence-based crime prevention strategies like group violence intervention, policing professionals commonly express concern about potential displacement, Despite evidence to the contrary, some believe that if we block opportunities for crime, all of it will simply move around the corner or people who've committed lower level crimes will be willing to engage in more serious crimes. What was your experience in Manchester? Did you look for evidence of displacement? And if so, what did you find?
2: Yeah, we, we I love social network analysis. We find the tool very valuable to look at individuals and how they relate to the to, to their peers and the rest of their, their network. Um, and by you know, the theory says that these influencers are influencers for a reason, and it's because that they are influential to the behaviors of those around them. And what we did is we, we looked to track that, not only you know, did victimization and crime involvement of the influencer go up or down, but we looked at how did that impact the rest of the network. So the network that made up kind of the most at-risk youth uh, in, in gun violence was, was 109 individuals. And doesn't mean they're all offenders, but they had some involvement in in this network. And what we found was in that group, arrests declined by 32% compared to the pre-intervention period. Um, Being suspected of a crime declined by 44%. um, Also significantly victimization in that network declined by 73% compared to the pre-intervention levels. Um, And then just any involvement in a crime being whether they're a victim, a witness, just there on scene, um, had declined by forty percent when we looked at the contacts within our system, and and that was really I think significant and, and just proof of the fact that if we target these um, influencers not just for enforcement but also for outreach and making them better, that that's going to make those around them better as well, uh, and and it it kind of was was proof of the theory for us in our context in our city. Uh, and and to be able to then show that and bring that back, especially to leadership and to the, the officers working every day responding to these things, uh, is is helpful in just showing that these interventions can work.
0: Absolutely. So, following the literature, you found evidence of a diffusion of benefits rather than displacement, yeah. um, which tends to be more common and and really helpful, I think, for for people to hear. Now, to answer the questions that I just posed to Chief Ash and Lieutenant Barter, we need data and we need quality analysis. And Mr. Sheesh, this is your area of expertise. So, if you could please just tell us a little bit about obstacles you've encountered as an analysis manager. What makes it difficult to measure crime problems and determine whether our interventions work?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question, Dr. Harold. Um, There's really two parts of that question that jumped out to me, which was measuring crime problems and then evaluating the results. And so, we, we really have to be able to build our data capacity and then be willing to use it, right? So the analogy that I would use on building data capacity is, is data is like a kaleidoscope. And, and I'm, I'm kind of showing my age here a little bit, but I had one of these handheld kaleidoscopes as a kid, the cylindrical object that you would look through, you'd put a disc into it, hold it up to the light. And as you turn it, the colors and the shapes move and interact. Data is a little bit like that. If an agency is only using a records management system to collect static data according to NIBRS data elements, it's like dropping that kaleidoscope disc in there but not even bothering to turn the cylinder. It's not very interesting, not very useful. But if you can expand that data capacity and recognize that NIBRS while it's an advancement forward still has limitations such as there is no data element for capturing that an incident was a shooting, or that a subject's injuries were the result of a gunshot. Um, But also expanding that capacity to build on other data sources that are available, such as records, I'm sorry, beyond records management systems, um, but calls for service data, enforcement data, and optimally court outcome data. So the more that that data can interact, the more that you can gain these really valuable and interesting insights into what's going on. But the flip side is that you have to be willing to use that data. And so the analogy that I would use here, and I'm gonna borrow from Stephen Covey is beginning with the end in mind. So the SARA model, scan, analyze, respond and assess. We do a really good job in law enforcement of identifying problems and then developing solutions very quickly. And that might work well for a tactical scenario and field operations but for strategic and operational analysis maybe not so well and sometimes what happens is crime analysis units get somebody coming and asking for data and maybe that's even after a response has occurred and that analysis was not on the front end of it And, and that can be really challenging and analysts have to be willing and have the freedom to ask those who are requesting data, why? What is the question that you are trying to answer? Um, And I think that's a really important aspect of applying the SARA model.
0: It makes a lot of sense, and your agency in Durham initiated Operation Bullseye, a multi-year city operation. And like many of the initiatives that I've designed or participated in, it was also place-based, which brings another dimension to violence reduction strategies. We're not just focused on who, but on the specific places where crime tends to concentrate over time. And it's amazing, at least to me, that the next generation of officers will often be dealing with the same persistent hotspots as the generation before. Your initiative was also heavily focused on gun crime intelligence. Tell us a little bit about Operation Bullseye and what the evidence suggested about the results of, of the project through your kaleidoscope of data.
3: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, Well, what's funny is that Operation Bullseye was a bit of an accident to begin with. And I love stories of accidental discoveries. So with Bullseye, we were working on it, like I said, a different project. And um, it was with calls for service data around shots, fire calls. And we discovered that the centroid of the densest area within the city, and we were using a very specific uh, uh, geographic extent, um, in this particular problem, what was centered on this part of East Durham. And then we overlaid the violent gun crime data on top of that. And the centroid of that was almost right on top of the shots fired calls. And then we took the last known residence of validated gang members. And lo and behold, the centroid of that was almost right on top of the other two. So we had this area of significant concentration where right around 2% of the land mass of the city was contributing 20% of the violent gun crime. So uh, police agencies are are like businesses. We have limited resources. So where are we gonna use those resources? So with the initiative, when we first went to police administration, the initial response was, that's really interesting. What do we do about it? And it wasn't a pushback on the analysis. It was, okay, how do we operationalize this? and a key component was that it could not be simply a police response. We've done this many times in policing where it's a suppression-only response without utilizing other resources to address issues in the environment. So to his credit, then city manager Tom Bonfield challenged every department within the city with identifying specifically what they could do to help contribute To solutions within this two-square-mile area, whether it be street maintenance or identifying vacant and abandoned properties, implementing a systematic rental inspection program. It was a coordinated approach, not just police suppression. So the the result was by the end of year four, we had cut violent gun crime by half in a two-square-mile area. And this was a really challenging thing to address something at such a large scale because some of the other evidence that we looked at in preparing were Operation Ceasefire Initiatives in say Boston or St. Louis or LA. This was much larger in scale and we had to break it down into nine deployment zones. Um, There was also a big reduction in other quality of life issues. So the, the takeaway from that was really being willing to look at local risk factors, work with partners and realize to in order to achieve really long term change, that those partnerships have to exist. It's not just the police.
0: Thank you for listening to part one of this episode. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and stay tuned for part two. To learn more about today's topic or about NIJ, Visit the links in the episode description and join us for new episodes every month. Opinions or points of view expressed in this episode represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the U.S. Department of Justice. Any products and manufacturers discussed in this episode are presented for informational purposes only and do not constitute product approval or endorsement by the U.S. Department of Justice.